So that little chant was uh, a traditional way of requesting a Dhamma talk. It's what we do in the monasteries when uh, when we want to hear a Dhamma talk, we do that little chant and then the senior person has to, or one of the senior people have to deliver the Dhamma. <laughs> so I'd like to begin with uh, paying homage to my teacher, the Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang Tamang Sankang Namasame. So, just as we were doing the evening chanting, sometimes little lines kind of pop, jump out, even I've been doing this chanting for many years now. But sometimes lines kind of jump into my consciousness as, we, as we're chanting it. And tonight, those words, it's, it's a little bit old-fashioned language, but it, when it says, it is well for us that the Blessed One, having attained liberation, still had compassion for later generations. And as I was, as I was hearing that, I was like, gosh, you know, 2,600 years ago, this man, through his hard efforts, uh, realized complete enlightenment. And um, <clears throat> it is said that after he was enlightened, his first thought was not to, to go and share this wonderful realization with, with all sentient beings, to liberate all sentient beings, but his first thought was, this is so subtle, nobody's going to get it. I'll just carry on and enjoy my meditation. And then <coughs> the... The, uh, they talk about they speak about gods in in the in the Hindu uh, cosmology and Buddhist cosmology. So this is like a, a high celestial being, and then Saka, the the king of the gods, which is what this little chant was about, came and said, "Please, out of compassion, teach the Dharma to those with little dust in their eyes." So then, the, having been requested to teach, to teach the Dharma, the Buddha couldn't really sort of say no, he couldn't, you know, being a selfless being, couldn't be selfish and say, no, 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 I'm just going to enjoy the bliss of Nibbana. So he began his 40 years of, of teaching, travelling on foot mostly and teaching. And it just struck me that here we are sitting in IMS in 2012, Barry, Massachusetts. We are later generations, you know, we are the later generations who can benefit from this uh, compassionate action of the Buddha in, in sharing the teachings. And it, it appears from some of the, particularly in, in the, some of the monastic, the books on the monastic discipline, <laughs> it appears that he had quite a difficult time sometimes in, in getting, getting the point across. People made some really big mistakes, and uh, and he had some very uh, diff- monks and nuns who were very difficult to, to deal with, 
even in his time. So it wasn't always easy. You know, we have this idea everything was blissful. And it seems that many people were getting enlightened at the time of the Buddha. We can have this sort of ideal that, you know, it was all very wonderful. Everyone was very pure-hearted and totally, totally dedicated to the practice. And, but it, as we read the, the commentaries on the rules, that you find that it was far from the truth. There was a lot of quite... Uh, bizarre behavior going on amongst some of the monks and nuns. And, uh, but anyway, he carried on teaching and, and training because he, he saw you know, what his insight wasn't, it wasn't that he became something different, but that, like Ayasanthachita was saying, he, he, the, the veils of delusion fell away and he saw the truth of the way things are. And not just saw it for a moment, but, but dwelt in that for the rest of his days and uh, and you know returning to the the natural state of things you know he saw here are all these people who have the same potential all of us we have the same potential who are running after temporary pleasures and running away from temporary pains or fears that we've created in our own minds often. And you know, the, this is where his compassion arose, uh, out, of, out of compassion to teach the Dhamma so that though, for, to those with little dust in their eyes, those who, who can see clearly enough, that's, I would say, probably everyone here, who can see clearly enough that they, they're not anymore completely buying into the the idea that if I have the next nice new car or outfit or cream cake or whatever it may be, then I'll be happy. And there are people who, who spend their entire lives, you know, <coughs> entire lives following one pleasure after another. And that could be just simply sensual pleasures or it could be wealth, you know, gaining more and more wealth for one's own benefit only or it, or one's own including one's family but in a very finite way or it can be uh, power and and fame you know these things people can become very um, intoxicated with and the, you know the Buddha being one who is awake just sees with, with great compassion people who are, who are following that what a, what a, a wasted opportunity of this lifetime to spend it in that way. And you know, this culture it very much encourages us to, to go in the wrong direction. It encourages us to be competitive, individualistic, to, you know, to, to be the best, to get to the top, to, to follow our desires. And uh, I don't know if any of you have tried <laughs> You know, we, we, and certainly my experience was finding a, a big empty hole at the end of that. No, no satisfaction, no self-respect, no real contentment or joy from following, not that I followed all of those things, but following some of them. And it doesn't, these, they, they, they're constantly promising satisfaction and promising happiness, but you know, and it, it maybe comes for just for, for a little while. You might get a wave of joy, 
when you're successful in something or you know, maybe a week of delight in, with your new computer, whatever it may be. And then it's, it's ordinary again. Then you, you want to go on to the next thing. You want to be more successful, more wealthy, more interesting, whatever it might be. So this practice is, um, you know, it's going right against that, that stream. It's about turning in the opposite direction and really looking at where does happiness come from? You know, where does contentment come from? Where does joy come from? So we, we're renunciants. We've lived for 20 years now in, in, a monastery, in, in monasteries. For the last sort of 18 years or so, we haven't used money. We haven't had our own money at all. <laughs> we can't go shopping. We can't get. Well, we can get around a little bit now because we've got a, a card that we can get on the bus. But sometimes we can't even do that. And uh, you know, we can't wear the colours we want or the outfits we want to wear. Pretty limited what we can do with our hair. <laughs> you know, so. And yet uh, there's a lot of joy in this life, a lot of joy. Because uh, you're living in a way that's not, you're consciously not causing harm to others, not creating harm to others. And even though that the habit can still be there in the mind, it's not like we shave our heads, put the robe on and immediately become saintly. You know, you have to work at it. But you know, you, you know when, you, when you're consciously, intentionally causing harm to another and how painful that is for, for yourself and to the person you're doing it to and maybe also to others around you who witness that and you know, your life isn't any more oriented around well, at first it is but as, as one first um, comes into a, a monastic situation you know, there's this sense of like it's me I, I know what I'm doing, I know what I need, and I'm using this framework as a support for my practice. This is how it begins. So I was just thinking about this. I don't know whether this will also, um, this process may also happen on a, on a 10-day retreat, I don't know. But you come in with this sense of you know, what I need, what I want to do, my practice, how I'm going to do it. And, and this is the support. So like on our retreat here, this is, we have this support for me and my practice. It starts like that. And then over time, because we're all living together, doing things together, we, we, even we're not speaking, we, we, f- we feel each other's presence and we hopefully relate in a respectful way, you know, in the cueing and the cleaning and the various things we're doing together and the sitting and keeping silence, you know. So we're, we're, we're sensitive to each other. And that sense of, of me and what I'm going to get out of this hopefully starts to break down. And it's not that we don't get anything out of it if we do that, but that the, the, the act of wanting to benefit someone else you know, becomes the source of our joy. And the, you know, the, the cleaning, the bathroom that maybe we don't even use can be a, a source of joy because we, we're making it clean and beautiful for people to use that day so they don't have to experience a, a grotty bathroom. And if you contemplate that, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's a joyful thing, it's a beautiful thing to do. 
and also their own practice, you know, as we as we're sitting. You know, it's, first of all, there's a sense of me trying to focus my mind, be present, and and maybe other people's presence is even a bit irritating. Can be for people, for some. But then, as we as we go through this retreat, I hope that there will be occasions where we really feel the mutual support because it's here, it's tangible. I feel it just sitting in this room. There's this sense of a collected effort, and, and that in itself is a support to the individual. So it's each of our each of our individual efforts is, is holding a collective field of support. So this is, these are ways we can just notice the, the sense of self and other and you know, our motivations and how, how we can just, by turning the mind in the right direction, how we can start to break down that sense of separateness, that sense of, of me and what, I, what I'm going to get out of it. And definitely, you know, the the um, the path is is a is a path of cultivation, and it's a path of generosity, and very much a path of relinquishment. So we tend to think in terms of, you know, gaining because we're so conditioned in that way. You know, we want to we maybe come on this retreat and we think, okay, I want to get really good samadhi, and I want to get to to the fourth jhana or something like this. So we don't really teach jhana retreats. So. But we might think, you might come thinking that way and it's like, I want to get something. I've got, I've got a goal. I'm going to go for it. I've got to really work on my breath. I've got to really get it really tight there, you know. And, uh, and then we're, not, we're missing the fact that this whole, the whole orientation is around me and what I'm going to get. We're completely missing that which is kind of going in the opposite direction to what the Buddha is pointing to. <laughs> so this is the, the, um, what, what, are known, what are often referred to as attainments, which is not a word I, I find very helpful. So the, the, the stages of insight that one can experience in the, through the practice, they don't come through gaining. We don't gain anything. But we, we are shedding layers of delusion. We're seeing through the delusion that is stopping us from being fully awake. Because behind all of these ever-changing mind states is the awakened mind. It's, it's waiting for us to rediscover it. So uh, we, on, the, on the wall out there we put up a, a poster of the Nivaranas or the hindrances and I was happy to see quite a number of people stopping and pondering over this poster and in that the, in that imagery that the, the Buddha is using the, um, a simile of a, a bowl of water and he's saying and he's speaking about the, the five hindrances which is very important to know about when you meditate so the, the five hindrances being sensual desire ill will sloth and torpor and restlessness and doubt so those those are all hindrances to enlightenment. They're not they're not absolute obstacles, but while they're present in the mind, the mind can't see clearly. So you can go and have a look at the the poster through these next days and and just contemplate the imagery. But each uh, each of these hindrances he likens to 
you know, a bowl of clear water, so like sensual desire, a bowl of clear water that has then had dye put into it. So we can't see the, the, the purity, the, cl- the clarity of the water. We can only see it coloured by this dye. And, and sensual desire is very much like that. It's kind of red. <laughs> we see everything through this. We, we, can't, we, can, we can even experience it directly. You know, we, can't, we know that we're seeing through this, this strong kind of curtain of desire. And we might know it's going on, but it's so attractive that we can't s- stop it. We just keep following that. So to know that this is a hindrance to enlightenment is, is, a, is a good incentive to actually just t- get a check on that. You know, do, do I really want to follow this? This is a hindrance to enlightenment. And it might be going on really strongly and all you can do is say, this is sense, sense desire, sensual desire. That might be as much as you can manage and it still keeps churning away. But just that much is already a lot. That's already like... I don't, can't really give a percentage, but it's a, it's a huge percentage more than being completely lost in it. And then as we, as we do that, as we stay knowing our sensual desire and knowing the feeling of it and, and knowing the, the, what it is, it, sooner or later it will, it will change as everything does. And then we see the cessation of sensual desire. And then it's like, oh, it's actually quite a relief. Now, even though it might be, it might, might really grip your mind while it's present, when it when it ends, it's like what a relief, how nice to have that space where the mind isn't grasping, yearning, and uh, an ill will which which comes in many forms. It can be resentment, it can be hatred, it can be anger, it can be irritability. It comes in many many guises. Many, from very gross to very subtle. And uh, this is likened to water that's boiling. So when, when water is boiling, you can't, you look in it and you can't, all you can see is lots of heat and bubbles and kind of gets in your face. You can't, you can't see, and you can't see your own reflection clearly in that water because it's turbulent, hot. So this is how it is with the, with the mind of ill will, anger ill will we can't see clearly so acting on a mind of ill will is inevitably going to be problematic because we're we're acting without being able to see clearly and just knowing that this is again this is a hindrance so if this comes up in your in your time on retreat if you get a lot of aversion or resentment or um, or anger irritation then you can know this is the hindrance of ill will, present. And it's changing. It's not, it's not who and what I am. I don't have to grasp it, identify with it. It is not who and what I am. It is the, this hindrance that is arising and present now. And it feels like this. And just to be with that until it naturally passes. So when we don't feed it, it will pass much quicker. And also, we don't make the karma that we would if we act on a, or speak on a mind state like that. And uh, restlessness, <laughs> restlessness and, and sleepiness and drowsiness, these are things we'll certainly get familiar with over the retreat. <laughs> Often it can be just kind of shifting from one to the other, you know. You're feeling really agitated, restless, then you kind of 
then you just kind of blank out and go to sleep and oh, try to wake up again. And so, you know, and, and we, can, we can get really disheartened if, if, if we identify with these things. You can feel like, oh, I just, I'm just can't meditate, I'm no good. And, but actually what we need to do is to know what's going on. So when there's a lot of restless agitation, you can feel your heart's beating too very fast, your breath's really shallow, you feel very restless, agitated, then know this is restlessness, hindrance to enlightenment. <laughs> and it feels like this. Just that, that's all you need to do. And, uh, and bear it, hang in there, bear with it. And even if, even if you don't, uh, if it doesn't change until the bell's rung and you can actually get out and move, you know, at some point it's, it's, going, to, it's going to change. And sleepiness and drowsiness is a very tricky one because it kind of lulls you and you don't really notice it's crept up on you. Um, but we've said a few techniques that you can use, so standing up, breathing deeply, opening your eyes, pulling your earlobes is something the Buddha recommended. That's good. That's why I've got such long earlobes, we're sleepy. Yeah, these are all ways you can help to wake, wake yourself up. And if you're just stuck in a, in a constant nodding, semi-awakenness through your meditation, which can happen, we'll be doing it probably sometimes, then just know, oh, sloth and torpor, oh, sloth and torpor, this is what it is. And you know, do what you can to, to come get out of it, but... You know, if, if one can't shift it, then just to know it is, is already good. <clears throat> and doubt. You can often have doubt in, in am, I doing the, am I doing the right technique? Am I, am I doing what? What did she mean? Am I, am I supposed to be watching my breath in my nostril or my belly or whole body? Or what am I supposed to be doing? So we can, we can, get, we can spend whole you know, hours doing that, <laughs> going round and round in circles, being unsure what we're supposed to be doing. And uh, if you find yourself doing that, then just choose one thing and do that. Because none of it's wrong. It's not going to be wrong. The Buddha, the Buddha didn't really specify where you should watch the breath, actually. He said to know the breath, to, to be aware of the, of the body breathing. So... You know, then just if you're in doubt, then choose one spot and just stay there. Choose the tip of your nose or choose your belly, whichever is most accessible to you, and just stay with that. And put your move your attention away from the the thinking, the doubting mind, to the object of meditation. So in the the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha directed us to be aware of mindfulness of the of the body which includes the breath, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind states, and mindfulness of mind objects. Um, in the, the mindfulness of mind objects, one of the categories he points to are the, the five hindrances. So when basically what this is saying is when one turns one's, one's attention to those hindrances and knows them for what they are and is mindful with them, it's, that in itself is bringing you back to mindfulness. So even though you may not be able to, to cut them, you are present with that hindrance, which is a, a mind state which is, can be used as one of the foundations of mindfulness. 
So, you know, there's, there's always a way to come back to the practice. And these hindrances, that when, when one cultivates a samatha concentration practice, then the hindrances are suppressed. They're being temporarily suppressed through that concentration practice. So you may have experienced this when, you, when one gets very collected and concentrated. And none of those hindrances are present. And the mind is bright and clear and awake. And it's a beautiful experience. It's, it's a very wholesome state. And then the bell rings, you come out of the meditation, and then immediately one of the hindrances arises. <coughs> Ill will. And then she rang the bell, I wanted to carry on meditating. Or, or, uh, or oh, I wonder what's what's uh, for tea, or, you know, immediately the mind's gone, gone on to the next thing. So you can see that in, with concentration, the hindrances are, are temporarily su- suppressed, and this, you know, it's, it's a good thing to know what it's like. But in the path of awakening, we're working on really rooting out the hindrances. So we're really uh, investigating the causes of these hindrances and, uh, and cultivating... You know, wholesome qualities that work against them. So it's, a, it's a, like a longer haul, you could say. But it's very good to, to develop some uh, samatha in order to really focus and collect the mind and to experience that, if you're able to experience that, that uh, mind that is released, temporarily released from these kind of obscurations, hindrances. And you know, not to really not to get disheartened if if, the, if you spend the whole retreat just being aware of, of, of these hindrances. I once I, I lived in Chittas for some years with Ajahn Sachito as the abbot, and uh, I struggled a lot with the hindrances. Although I would also have like collected mind at times, and I remember one retreat he he actually made the focus of that retreat just know which hindrance is present in the mind in any given moment. And that was the instruction for the retreat. And to me, that was like, that is so compassionate. Because it's not saying you've got to develop this, you've got to be something else, you should be somewhere else. It's just know what is present in this moment. And then if there's no hindrances present, then you know, oh, no hindrances present. And it really cuts that whole becoming energy and trying to get away from energy and identification energy. It cuts all of that. So we're no longer trying to become the perfect meditator or or become enlightened, or um, get away from these awful habits of mind, because because it's really who and what we are. But it's um, it's recognizing them for just just for what they are. They're not they are not me or mine. They're not who and what we are. However much it feels like it when they're present. So the the trick is to not identify but to, to know, directly know, our experience as it is. And to notice the, the changing nature of, of all of this. So I, I think it's very helpful on a retreat situation where we're, you know, we're following a very sort of set rhythm, really. You know, we, we have our seat, that we've, we've all got our spot now, and you know, we sit at certain times that are designated, and we walk, and we come back, and we sit. I, I think it's a very good practice that each time we come back into the hall, just we sit down, maybe bow to, if you want to bow, bow to the shrine as a, as a sort of a mark of it arriving, and then just 
recollect, you know, where am I now? What, what, what mind state is present now? How does, the, how does the body feel now? And just each time you come back to your seat, just to, just to do that for a few moments. And no, it's a way of noticing how this is continuously changing. And how when we, the first time we sit down, like maybe when we, when we first arrive here, you know, there's a strong sense of who we are, all the stories of our life and, and, and what we want to do. And you know, all of this sense of, of, of self is very strong. And then the, the, the hindrances that come up and our struggles with those and identifying with those and that sense of self is very strong. So then just to, to notice, to make the sitting down on the cushion a, a time to notice, how is it now? And is that the same as it was half an hour ago or, or an hour ago when I left this cushion to go and do walking meditation? And you start to see that those experiences that we that, that feel so real and, and you know, personal aren't. They're, they're just going through their process. But this is something you have to see for yourself. It's not, uh, it's not, it doesn't help for me to tell you and you believe me. You have to, or don't believe me, but you have to investigate and, and see for yourself this changing nature, how we are a process what we, talk, what we call me is a process. So we can think of ourselves you know, as a verb instead of a noun. So right now I'm Ananda Bodying. I'm not sure what happens when I go to sleep. But uh, you know, there's, this, there's this process going on. It's, it's ever-changing. And it's got a certain flavor, it's got a certain character, it's got certain tendencies. But it's, it's continuously changing. The feelings are changing. The perceptions are changing. The thoughts are constantly changing. The body itself, you know. It's, it's, uh, apart from the fact that it moves, and it's changing in that way. The heart's beating, the blood's moving, the breath is coming in and out. And influencing the body. Also the skin, you know, skin's falling off. Hairs fall off. It's going on all the time. So this, this process of what we call me is, is ever, ever, ever changing. So if we, if we uh, never slow down, we never notice. So this retreat is an opportunity to really slow down, quieten the mind a little bit, enough that we can see this ever-changing process that we call me. And when we see it in that way, there's, there's a, a great freedom it doesn't mean we can't direct our life in a, in a good way. It doesn't, we don't lose anything other than the stress of having to be somebody. That's all. So I'd like to offer that for your reflection this evening. So
um, now we are ending with the same method chant which we did yesterday evening. We do that every evening. <coughs> May I be filled with love and kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. May you be filled with love and kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be happy. May we be filled with love and kindness. May we be well. May we be peaceful and at ease. May we be happy. May I be filled with love and kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. May you be filled with love and kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be happy. May we be filled with love and kindness. May we be well. May we be peaceful and at ease. May we be happy. May I be filled with love and kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. May you be filled with love and kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be happy. May we be filled with love and kindness. May we be well. May we be peaceful and at ease. May we be happy.
So we're going to meet again tomorrow at 5.30 for morning meditation and morning chanting. And we're ending with the closing homage. It's on page 20. Page 20. We do it in English. You know, and please, when you get up later and go up to your room, please don't forget to just, um, you know, get up mindfully and go to your room mindfully and just use everything as, as practice. Perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.